0: If you're a fan of Jesuitical, then you would love all of the other smart Catholic resources from America magazine. Every day, you can find the best in Catholic media from America. Whether it's the daily scripture reflections, Vatican analysis, or culture reviews from a Catholic perspective, you need to be reading America for a well-rounded Catholic point of view. And there's never been a better time to try it. To introduce more people to America during the season of Lent, you can try a subscription to America for just $1 for your first month. If you're already a subscriber, this is a great chance to introduce America to someone else in your life. So please help us spread the word. To take advantage of this $1 offer, visit www.americamagazine.org forward slash trial. That's americamagazine.org slash trial. Or click the link in the show notes.
1: And welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast from America Media for Saints and Sinners. And you can join us each week for honest conversations about the Catholic Church in our world today, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis.
2: Great to be with you, Ashley.
1: Great to be with you, Zach.
2: Thanks. It's good to see you. We're This is our last show before Thanksgiving. Oh, um, I
1: forgot about we that.
2: Re- we, we recorded one ahead of time, so we will have a show for you uh, the week of Thanksgiving. We wouldn't want you to be Black Friday shopping without us in your ears, so <laughs> make sure to record that ahead of time. But uh, we're wrapping up. The holidays, I, they always sneak up on me.
1: Oh, I know. When we came back from Rome, I was like, oh, it's already Christmas, basically. <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> at,
1: least in, at least in the grocery stores.
2: <laughs> I have a, I, I would like to make a proposal to America, which is uh, the, the, com- the country, okay. not the magazine. Um, could we just move Thanksgiving away from its proximity to Christmas? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think the Canadians have it right. Just like a month before. I think some some time in October I think would be much better spreads out the joy a little bit. I feel like it, this is just a wave of activity leading mm-hmm. up to Christmas. Gets in the way of my advent. That that too.
1: That too and but it has to happen during football season, right? That that's important. Yeah, Your that's, what, that's, why, that's why I think
2: October, <laughs> okay. I think October is <laughs> perfect. So, anyway, just take that up, consider it. Let me know what you think. America. Uh, what do we got this week for our show, Ashley.
1: This week, we're talking to Lee C. Camp. He's a professor of theology and ethics at Lipscomb University in Nashville, Tennessee. And he's the host of the podcast, No Small Endeavor, exploring what it means to live a good life.
2: Yeah, Lee is a super, super thoughtful guy. He has a very fascinating uh, relationship in history uh, with religion and also with Catholicism. You know, he was someone who was a, um, a Protestant studying at the University of Notre Dame, which I'm told is a Catholic university um, in Indiana somewhere. Um, so he, he gives us a lot of insight into what it was like, his views on Catholicism, how they've changed over the years, because his, his background was maybe hostile is too strong of a word, but it was definitely at odds with Catholicism.
1: Yeah. And we talked to him before the synod. But one thing that came out in our conversation is maybe what we can learn from our Protestant brothers and sisters about dialogue and like a third way between our polarized camps. So I really appreciate that from Lee.
2: Yeah. So uh, stay tuned for that conversation with Lee. We have to thank him for recommending a great drink. And this was another ecumenical choice.
1: Yes, we are drinking some Trappist ale. Uh, it's Ch- uh, Chimay Premier, is that how you would yeah, it's say it? Yeah, pretty good. Okay, You're basically thank you. Belgian. Yeah, um, and I wanted to read one of the lines from the back. We can we can feel good about drinking this ale because it says the Trappist logo certifies that this ale is brewed in a Trappist abbey and that the majority of sales income is intended for social aid. So there yeah. you go. And you can find it at Whole Foods.
2: Oh, nice work! Thank you. Well done. So cheers. <laughs> cheers. Okay. Oh, good. Mm, good. And like a good Trappistale, that is like 7% at least, I think, alcohol <laughs> yeah. by volume.
1: That was a good guess. It is 7%. Good job. I looked it up. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, though. All right. And now we have Signs of the Times, the part of the show where we sift through the Catholic News of the Week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach?
2: So this first story, you might have heard because it broke through the Catholic news bubble. I, I I always am fascinated about what stories people ask me about that mm-hmm. aren't living and working in the Catholic world. And this is one of them, because uh, the controversial bishop of Tyler, Texas, Joseph Strickland, uh, was removed by Pope Francis on November 11th, which is a pretty rare move.
1: It definitely is. Um, and Pope Francis had done what? The pope usually does when a uh, bishop is uh, not <laughs> in He's line. He's going to get fired. Yeah. So he asked him to tender his resignation two days before um, on November 9th. And Bishop Strickland uh, decided not to offer his resignation. And so the pope had to remove him.
2: Yeah, which is um, within the pope's authority to do so. A little bit of background um, who who was Bishop Strickland? Why why did he uh, attract the attention of Pope Francis in the Vatican?
1: Yeah, so he's been a, a vocal critic of Pope Francis for a few years now. He's someone who maybe you remember back in 2018 when Archbishop Maria Carlo Vigano put out this letter calling for the Pope to resign. Uh, Strickland was... <laughs> sympathetic to that letter. Also a letter from Vigano calling the COVID-19 vaccines a conspiracy to, you know, institute world government. And he has, I should say, a very active presence on Twitter. And so, you know, he had been criticizing the Pope um, at various times, but he seemed to cross a line for the Vatican earlier this year when he tweeted that he rejects, quote, the Pope's program of undermining the deposit of Faith. So he, he wanted to make clear that he didn't say that Pope Francis wasn't the legitimate pope, but that he worried that the pope was undermining uh, the faith in his role.
2: Yeah. And so the Vatican didn't actually give a reason for but Bishop Strickland's removal. Um, it's it. it as usual, it doesn't give an official reason, but we also know that Bishop Strickland was subject to a Vatican investigation in June. This is officially called an apostolic visitation when um, some officials show up, um, some bishops and priests, and just start asking questions about governance in the diocese. So in addition to like the firebrand tweeting that he was doing, it seems like it also came out that he had really kind of mismanaged the diocese itself. There are questions about his finances, um, questions about um, a high turnover rate among his staff, about morale among his priests and diocesan staff. So it seems like the tweeting might have played a part, but it seems primarily like it could have been just like administrative.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, and so the question is, you know, what now? So Strickland is still a bishop. He's kind of like a retired bishop. He no longer has judicial control over his diocese. But neither the Vatican nor uh, the diocese in Texas has made clear what his new role will be. Um, but he he is not he hasn't going into hiding this week. The bishops, uh, the U.S. Bishop's Conference is meeting in Baltimore, and uh, Bishop Strickland is there. Uh, He's been holding some prayer vigils outside the meeting, but he's also welcome in the meeting, even though he doesn't have a vote there.
2: Yeah, it's really interesting to just kind of see him, like, wandering around outside of the meeting. He's attracted, like, these, like, small little crowds of, of fans of his or supporters of his that feel like he was unjustly removed. We're kind of in new territory here where you have this bishop who has this, like, very popular following online of people that aren't necessarily from, are almost certainly not from, I, I read somewhere that he has... Uh, more Twitter followers than Catholics in his former diocese. Oh wow. Which is interesting. Um and now all of a sudden he's been stripped of that diocese. He, the Pope can't exactly order him off Twitter. I guess he could technically, but yeah. that would be like maybe an extra next step.
1: Yeah, and this is a very telling incident in terms of, you know, where Pope Francis's line is when it comes to people being openly critical. Maybe it wasn't the criticism, but it does seem like that played a part for some Um, the investigation came six weeks after his notorious tweet. So I think it played a part in attracting Vatican um, scrutiny. Uh, And it shows that, you know, Pope Francis will put up with a lot of criticism, but maybe not the implication that he's... uh,
2: Undermining the Catholic faith. Yeah, from one of his bishops. Or at least he's like going to say, hey, go check that guy out, (laughs) at the very least. Um, What's our next story, Ashley?
1: All right. So we alluded to this before. Uh, The U.S. Uh, Catholic Bishops Conference, are meeting in Baltimore this week for their annual fall conference. And on the agenda are a few standard things that they do at, at these meetings. One was updating the introduction to the Bishop's Voting Guide, known as Forming Consciences for Faithful Citizenship. Um, this was written, like I think, back in 2007, and they haven't really done a real update Sense, but they've been adding these little introductions. Um, And the notable thing here is that they reaffirmed that uh, going into the 2024 elections, abortion is going to continue to be a preeminent priority for the bishops. Um, And then they also voted on bishops' committee heads. But What we want to talk about is an apparent rift between two of the top Catholic leaders at this meeting.
2: That's right. In the middle of this is our friend and colleague, uh, Jerry O'Connell, who published an interview in America with the Vatican Uncio. This is like the Vatican ambassador to the United States, um, Cardinal Christophe Pierre. And he had some tough words for uh, American bishops and priests.
1: Yeah, and we should say he always gives a, an introductory talk at these bishops' meetings. So he was going into this, you know, a couple of weeks after he had published this uh, interview, where he said a few things about the Catholic Church. Um, he said that he was shocked to learn that many bishops didn't really know that synodality had deep roots in Latin America. Um, he said that the bishops are struggling to evangelize in the wake of the sex abuse crisis, that, you know, we have all these schools and hospitals and churches that we built in the past 200 years, and now the people aren't showing up, and, you no, they're not going out of the church to bring people back into the pews. He took aim at young priests who like cassocks and the security of traditional liturgies more than going out to the people of God. So they were pretty, you know, blunt words about the state of the U.S. church.
2: Yeah, and also like seem to suggest that some priests and religious and bishops are against Francis. And he said, quote, as if he was the scapegoat for all the failures of the church or of society. So as you said, very, very blunt words against a lot of the U.S. church.
1: Mm -hmm. And we heard from our colleague, Michael Laughlin, and this has been true in the the media coverage of this event, that the bishops, you know, if they have not read this Interview, they're aware of it and they're talking about it. And at least uh, some bishops uh, don't think it's a fair representation of the church in the U.S., including the president of the USCCB, Archbishop Timothy Brolio.
2: Yeah, so he gave an opening address also at the meeting. Um, and he pointed out that uh, a lot of the Quote synodal realities um, are already present in the U.S. church in the form of you know pastoral councils, school boards, bishops' committees. Like lay people are already serving on these things. So I think he sees like the American church is already ahead in on, in some areas in synodality. He said that some sena- seminaries are actually full, and that the young priests that um, he didn't name Cardinal Pierre here, but he says that the young priests are on fire with the gospel, and even if they're obsessed with uh, yeah, casics.
1: and then yeah. <laughs> And so, later in the day, at a press conference, he was asked explicitly about Cardinal Pierre's characterization of of the u s. Church in his interview with America and asked if he recognized it. He said flat out, no." Um, he said that Cardinal Pierre was welcome to have his ideas of the church and that he was welcome to have his own ideas of the church,
2: yeah. It, fascinating. You don't norm- I mean, you don't normally see this level of like tension between the nuncio and the head of the bishop's conference, at least out in the open like this. I'm curious what you thought of, one, if uh, Cardinal Pierre gave an accurate view of the church in the United States, and two, even if it was accurate, was it wise to say (laughs) out loud?
1: (laughs) All right, I'll start with the second part of that. And that, yes, we say nuncio, Vatican word, but he is a diplomat. He's a diplomat between the Vatican and the United and the U.S. Church. And I would just say, whether it's accurate or not, these were not really diplomatic remarks to make uh, in public about the U.S. Church. And to get to your first point, um, you know, when you're talking about the bishops or the church, like, sorry to like sound like a broken. What do, they, what do you call it?
2: Broken record.
1: <laughs> Broken record on this. Yeah. Like we, there is no such thing as the bishops and the church to to paint with such a broad brush that like, oh, the bishops don't understand synodality. You know, all the young priests are like this. Like I never think such sweeping statements are fair or helpful. At the same time, there obviously are some bishops in some corners of the church that are not completely on board with Pope Francis's vision of synodality. Um, we've seen some resistance to participating in the synod over the past couple years.
2: Outside of Tyler, Texas, yeah, even
1: but but in the spirit of synodality, I think the nuncio would have been more synodal to have one-on-one conversations with people that he was concerned about uh, their stance on Francis or the synod.
2: Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. I'll say like, I think you're right to say that it's hard to paint with a broad brush, but there there is just like this reputation that the American church has. And maybe it's like not based in 100% reality, but I think it's Rooted in something like around the world, like the American hierarchy are viewed that as not being on board. We're painting with the world
1: with a pretty broad brush, there. Well,
2: yeah, that's true, and I <laughs> guess I don't have sources ar- like in every corner of the world, but um, it seems like you know, having spent the month in Rome, it does seem like the American church is viewed a certain way globally, um, and I think it would be good for the American church to ask why that is. Like, are we the problem or is everyone else just not understanding what our priorities are?
1: Yeah, that's fair. The American church has a long history of not being understood by the Vatican. So maybe we should expect that to always be the case. But I do think one thing I will concede as much as I kind of bristle at the kind of public call outs of of the bishops by the ambassador, um, there is something healthy about, you know, airing these differences and having people actually, you know, make their case and have people decide, like, is the church synodal enough already? Are the people of God happy with with our current Ways of doing pastoral councils. Um, and I would say that Berlio did say in his opening remarks that he, you know, as much as he defended the current state of the church, he did say that we should still be open to new ways of doing this um and improving on what we already have here. So if you know, the Nuncio's uh, words were kind of a a prompt to to look for those openings and new ways of doing things. I think that could be a, a positive thing to come out of this.
2: I agree. I think this is like a good, good conversation to have, um, especially good conversation to have in these 11 months leading up to the next session of the Synod. Um, So, yeah, not necessarily a thing to be scandalized by. Um, Hopefully the conversation continues.
1: And now stick around for our conversation with Lee C. Camp. Joining us from Nashville, Tennessee, is Lee C. Camp. Lee is a professor of theology and ethics at Lipscomb University in Nashville, and he's the author of Scandalous Witness, A Little Political Manifesto for Christians. And he's also the host of the podcast, No Small Endeavor, exploring what it means to live a good life. Welcome to Jesuitical, Lee.
3: Thank you, Ashley. Zach, good to be with you guys. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, great to be with you. Before we get into your podcast, we'd love to hear a little about your own background and religious
2: uh, upbringing. Uh, you, so you grew up in Alabama, from what I understand. Um, what religious
3: tradition did you come up in? So I was, I was raised in a, in a quite conservative Protestant Christian tradition, Churches of Christ in Alabama. We were, we were the acapella-only singing Southern Christian tradition. It had its uh, great joys, and it had it, its great problems. <laughs> and uh, But uh, yeah, that's I was raised in Alabama, then uh, went to school in Nashville, decided along the way to go to seminary which I did at Abilene Christian University. And then I started reading certain uh, Christian ethicists along the way and got especially interested in an eth- ethicist at Notre Dame. And so I applied to Notre Dame and several other places. Got into Notre Dame and uh, spent five years there in grad school, which was a lovely time. And then uh, had been teaching back in Nashville for 24 years now at Lipscomb University.
1: I'm curious from your perspective, as you experienced it as a young person, what, what were the joys and challenges of your specific tradition?
3: You know the the joys were the fact that it was a very substantive community, and we had people that cared about us a a great deal, and were present to us in our lives. But you know, following the New Testament language rhetoric, we would call one another brother and sister. So you know, so we'd have these people that are 80 years old, and we would call them brother Tumlin or brother Fields. Uh, But there was a sort of a true uh, brotherly, sisterly love uh, in the community. They just really meant a lot, and I loved acapella singing. I, lo- I loved. I learned to sing. I still to this day love singing. Part of the challenges was that we were a fairly sectarian and exclusivistic sort of community, and so we were kind of like the only Christians. You know, so so Catholics, for example, were not Christians, and you know, B- Baptists were not Christians. We were the only Christians, and so there, along with that sort of sectarianism and exclusivism. Was a very, especially with the preacher I had for many years growing up, highly legalistic and uh, grew up with a true, deep, visceral fear of going to hell. And the ease with which one could go to hell was just super, super easy to find yourself there. You
2: know, it's funny. I admittedly don't know a whole lot about the Church of Christ Congregation, but I I feel like I just have
3: this vague sense of they were not, they didn't love Catholics. No, no. No, we, that we, correct? We, we didn't like Catholics at all. Uh, I mean, we didn't like Notre Dame at all, as a matter of fact, because... But there, well, I don't like Notre Dame very much either, yeah. but like, so I, I share in that ecumenism. But. Now, I do love Notre Dame now, but as a kid growing up, we didn't love Notre Dame, one, because they were Catholics, so obviously we didn't like them. And then second, we didn't like them because they always beat Bear Bryant in football, so we were, you know, we were Alabama, Alabama Roll <laughs> Tide true. fans, and so we didn't like the fact that they always beat Bear Bryant. But uh, but no, I I don't even remember any friends growing up that were Catholic. Uh, so yeah, it was a foreign experience for me that uh, really opened my eyes up a lot when I went to Notre Dame. Can I ask what the like general view of Catholics were, if you could try to remember back? I'm just very curious. In our particular Protestant tradition, Catholics were especially seen as those who had so given themselves over to, you know, I'll put this in scare quotes, you know, traditions of men as opposed to the Bible that therefore they were suspect and um, mm-hmm. so you know so you know I would I would learn that how complex and problematic that kind of critique is years later that it's not obviously nearly as simple as that not
1: without basis though yeah, <laughs> yeah. yes yeah. don't ask me to quote from the Bible yeah, yeah. <laughs>
3: <laughs> that, is, that is one thing I remember uh, one day sitting in a class at Notre Dame and uh, in a seminar session. So, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here with a super, really super smart people who know bucket loads about theology. And uh, But one day someone said something about, the doctrine of inspiration of scripture and, and they said something like, as I recollect, somebody said something like, well, that's, that's 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 an idea that's not even in the Bible. And I said, oh, yes, yes it is, is." Second Timothy 3.16. And then I quoted the verse and they just looked like looked at me like I was an alien of, you know, what? You're <laughs> quoting the Bible? About the Bible? What is that all about? In
2: a deep cut too, like Second Timothy is not like one of the Gospels. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Notre Dame is, you know, a far cry both uh, religiously and in football wise from where, where you grew up. What were your first impressions? Were you nervous about like walking into like a sort of a super Catholic
3: environment like that, or curious, or and what? Excited? what even
1: made you interested in going there in the first place?
3: <laughs> there was a one particular faculty member that I wanted to study with, and so that's that's what first uh, drew me to going to study there. But as far as like the the sense of nervousness about it. Um, My wife and I were doing six months in Nairobi, Kenya between seminary and grad school. And so uh, I didn't know where I was gonna be going or if I would get into graduate school in those six months we were in Nairobi. And so I got in those days a fax, we were still doing faxes in those days. I remember getting this fax from my dad that just said in, in big block letters, congratulations, you got into Notre Dame and go Irish. And so when we flew back into Birmingham for my parents to pick us up from that trip abroad, um, my dad proudly called me to look at the back of his car. And he said, look, look what I've got on my bumper. And it was a a bumper sticker that said, my son goes to Notre Dame. And then had the little Fighting Irish guy on it.
1: So had your parents always been more open than maybe other members of the community?
3: Yes, (laughs) they were. But what was so funny about that was I thought, I can't believe he has done that and the potential um, kind of social damage that could do to him in, in our little small town of Talladega. And so I looked a little closer and he had put it on with masking tape so he could take <laughs> it off before he went back into town. <laughs> Rather than like walk drive around with a kick yeah, sign. Yes, yeah. exactly, exactly. So that, so that was kind of, that kind of points to the kind of the sense of both excitement and also a little bit of anxiety about it. But uh, yeah, when I arrived, it was, uh, when I had done my interviews, they they made it pretty clear, look, this is a it's a Catholic school, and you're going to have to take some Catholic moral theology uh, because it's a Catholic school. But at the same time, they made it very clear that they tried to be hospitable, and it was immensely hospitable. It was probably, I don't know the exact numbers, but I've always assumed at that time that it was roughly 50% Protestant, 50% Catholic as far as graduate students, and, and roughly maybe the same with faculty. Um, and so it was a it was just a wonderful, rich experience, uh, ecumenical broadening of my vision of the Christian world that I remain super grateful for to this day.
1: One thing, at least from my perspective as a Catholic, I see theologians often as kind of like the cutting edge of our church and pushing boundaries, which for some people can be very exciting and for other people can be like, don't touch that, it'll right. <laughs> it'll ruin your faith. Uh, so how did, he, how did you experience uh, theology specifically at a Catholic school?
3: Yeah. That's interesting. First of all, that's interesting that you say that about that that's also perhaps a catholic experience of seeing theologians as potentially dangerous in the life of the church. But it, that's very much the case in in uh, many protestant traditions, evangelical traditions, though I'm not I don't think of myself as an evangelical, but in kind of more conservative protestant traditions as it's, it's the same sort of thing of kind of suspicion. Like I remember my first semester at Notre Dame, one of my professors was the famous Jesuit, Dick McCormick, who was, you know, famous Catholic liberal. And we would go to his house, which was just at the corner of campus for class. And I I saw pretty clearly uh, the way he was seen in the Catholic church, you know, as some celebrating him as a Catholic liberal and others immensely suspicious of him and demeaning of him even as a Catholic liberal. But I remember one day, here I was, I, at the time I was still a teetotaler and, you know, so, you know naive Southern, a good-hearted uh, young man. And I remember so clearly one day at break, we went into his dining room, and there was this big old uh, liquor chest. And I just thought, what? What is it? I, I can't believe this, you know. It, we weren't drinking, it comes in the middle of the day, but I was just, you know, to, to see... A theologian and a priest with this big old liquor cabinet was just, some, that, that was something to me. But then another thing that happened in the conversation in front of that liquor cabinet was the conversations about how there were far-right Catholics, and obviously I was seeing with Dick McCormick that there were far-left Catholics, and that even that, there were, that the, the far-right would write up these newsletters and run down the people on the left, and the left was suspicious of the right. And at some point, as they're talking about this kind of stuff, I said, y'all don't understand how disconcerting this is to a Protestant. Because I said, what we do as Protestants is that if we have those sorts of differences, we just break off and we start a new church or a new tradition. But you all are still in the same tradition. And I said that's so counterintuitive because our assumption is that a lot of Protestants' assumption is that you've got the papacy, and so that means everybody toes the line. And they said, oh, no, no, no. What happens with the papacy is it actually allows us to have greater diversity in the same tradition rather than less. And th- so that was a remarkable thing for me to see. The papacy f- and the liquor cabinet yeah. are what allow for <laughs> Yeah, that you can't anything. see it. It's
1: off camera, but we have a bar cart in our studio. Yeah, so
3: we've adopted that tradition. <laughs> well, well. I, yeah, I was, I, was pretty, I was pretty envious because I got an email from your producer asking, do I have a suggestion about something that you might drink? and doing the wrap up. And so I, I thought, man, that's that's pretty envious that you get to do that. <laughs> yeah, it was an integral part of the show when we yeah. proposed it. Yeah.
2: Sorry to keep asking you about, you know, your sort of view of the Catholic world, but when you were first encountering it, but I, I think it's such an interesting perspective. What parts of the theology, the moral theology, were you like learning that was kind of like, oh, this is really cool. I'm, I'm really surprised by this, or yeah. I'm interested in this.
3: Yeah. The things that I, that I found, especially beautiful and helpful in time, was the sort of virtue traditions that you have, especially in Aquinas, going back to Aristotle, and then in contemporary representative thinkers, somebody like Alistair MacIntyre, who was at Notre Dame when I first got there, he left and now he has been come back to Notre Dame. But that sort of vision of moral philosophy that is not asking the questions that the Enlightenment thinkers generally have asked in thinking about ethics. You know, Since the Enlightenment, generally speaking, and Macken, this is a line from McIntyre himself, You know, he says that since the Enlightenment, all ethics is legalistic, which I think is true, whether it's kind of right-wing or left-wing, uh, progressive or conservative, in many ways it's, it's, it's legalistic because it's not asking the question, what does it mean to live a flourishing, good human life? It's asking, what's the right and the wrong thing to do? without asking the questions about ends, without asking the teleological question. And so people like Aquinas, Aristotle, and MacIntyre taught me that ethics is much more interesting and fruitful when you ask the question, what does it mean to live a good life? What sort of life is life worth living? And then you ask yourself the question, what are the habits, the dispositions, the skills, the kind of internal character that one wants to develop as an individual or foster in a community to be that kind of people. And that I think is just, that's like a million dollar question that can help us in so many, many ways. And so I'm super grateful that I was given that kind of set of questions in that tradition. i mean, so it's, grateful
1: I'm, you started a podcast asking like, the yeah. same question.
3: <laughs> I mean, these are kind of the seeds
2: of, yeah, what you're trying to do with your media production, correct?
3: Exactly, yes, yeah. Yes, yeah. So our, our show, um, no Small Endeavor, the tagline is exploring what it means to live a good life, and one of the things that's I find beautiful about that kind of question is that all of a sudden it is itself a sort of ecumenical question, and it's also a question that can be raised of people, whether they are people of faith or not of faith, assuming that they're people of goodwill, because, for example, right in the you go back to Aristotle and, and he's got the four cardinal virtues, who was not a Christian who was not a Christian yes. correct yes. and, <laughs> and, and he got the four cardinal virtues, but his, his presumption is you can look at the way humans work and human communities work and figure out what kind of things we ought to, to do through basic observation. and then Aquinas of course picks that up and he says he's he's pretty right about that about those four cardinal virtues and he says but as Christians we also believe, that there are these infused virtues of faith, hope, and love that will even deepen and further extend things like the cardinal virtues, courage, prudence, temperance, and justice. But what that means is you can have super, super interesting conversations with theologians and, and Christian philosophers, but also with, with um, social scientists who don't have any kind of faith because they're asking questions about what can we observe about how humans and human communities work And how can we make observations about what kinds of habits, what kinds of commitments, what kind of convictions lead to more flourishing to the degree that we can discern those things? You know, simple things like, for example, gratitude or things like uh, the, the Harvard Adult Study, you know, this famous study that they've been doing at Harvard for 80 years, where they ask the question, what can we identify about how people do well, whether they're rich Harvard men or they're poor men from the inner city of Boston who have very little access to wealth or very little access to opportunity. And they've studied these people for decades and they discern, well, what we can tell you is that uh, healthy, happy, warm relationships has as much to do with a flourishing life as anything we can identify. And that things like loneliness uh, will impact your health negatively as bad as obesity or smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. And it's just, it's remarkable stuff, right? And so, so looking at the overlap among various disciplines it's been super rich to me and I'm I'm so happy I get to have these kind of conversations.
0: If you're a fan of Jesuitical, then you would love all of the other smart Catholic resources from America Magazine. Every day, you can find the best in Catholic media from America. Whether it's the daily scripture reflections, Vatican analysis, or culture reviews from a Catholic perspective, you need to be reading America for a well-rounded Catholic point of view. And there's never been a better time to try it. To introduce more people to America during the season of Lent, you can try a subscription to America for just $1 for your first month. If you're already a subscriber, this is a great chance to introduce America to someone else in your life. So, please help us spread the word. To take advantage of this $1 offer, visit www.americamagazine.org forward slash trial. That's americamagazine.org slash trial. Or click the link in the show notes.
2: You're also... a college professor and so i'm wondering what when you're teaching young people about ethics i I tend to have i don't know i don't know if it's a negative view but i think most people in contemporary society or most of my peers if, if you really push them at the end of the day they're probably like some version of like utilitarian or legalistic ethics followers um without really even knowing it maybe so they're kind of just seeking like greatest good for the greatest number um in this in this idea of maybe like well What's the end goal, or what is what does it mean to live a good life, can kind of come across as like a foreign language for a lot of people. Yes, What are you encountering in young people you teach?
3: No, I, it is very much originally a foreign language, and so I think what is so interesting to watch is that the um, it'll take the students a little while to to get at to get at it, but once they begin to see the immediate relevance that this has to very practical realities about one's life, they start loving it and they find it super helpful. One, one of my favorite stories about that is I used to, for some years, I used to teach a class called engineering ethics. So I was teaching engineers, you know, an ethics course. And so I would, for the first half of the semester, I'd try to teach them moral philosophy and, and theology. And then we'd do case studies at the second half of the semester. And so these engineers, they, they would get kind of pissed because they, they had, well, what why are we having to do moral philosophy and all this kind of stuff? You know, let's just talk about the problems. But what I watched was if I I kept sticking with it, a lot of them would start to get it. And then they would say, oh, my goodness, I see now. And so one of my favorite students I had um, told me about how, you know, it had been slow to come to him. But then he decided to go into law school. And one of the key things that he did in his law school admission interview was talk about, the telos of life, you know. And so here here he is seeing how significant this is, even for thinking about the rest of his life and in this conversation about trying to get into law school. Uh, It is highly relevant, highly practical, and can really change people's lives as as they engage it, uh, the way they live their daily life.
1: What do you think he meant when he said, can we just get to solving the problems? Like, was the idea he saw ethics as a just a a tool for fixing ills in the world or what, what What did you think was behind that?
3: Yeah, I think that there's a sort of sense of asking questions about right and wrong ought not be complicated, you know, and you just ought to be able to say, well, this is right and this is wrong. So let's get on with it. Right. Which is kind of, a, it's a similar sort of form of Protestant Biblicism, which says just, just tell me what the Bible says and let's get on with it. Right. And this sort of distrust of theology as, somehow obfuscating what ought to be obvious reality. and, and But obviously, it's, it's that, that's not what theology at its best is ever doing. It's not obfuscating. It's actually trying to elucidate and help us see better the things that we might have hidden or the things that we might presuming that we ought not presume or asking the questions, how do our presumptions, how do our base convictions actually fit with the things that we say we believe? Uh, so at its best, that's what it, what it is trying to do. But again, there's this sort of perhaps naive even well-intentioned, I want to say, but nonetheless naive presumption that all of this ought to be simple um, and, and you know, we ought to be able to just to see it and re- read the Bible and do what it says and not have to worry about the theologians, not have to worry about moral philosophy, which reminds me of another deep cut uh, from, um, what is it, Second Peter, who says, there are some things written by the apostle Paul that are hard to understand. And I just think, isn't that amazing? You know, here you have this canonical wow. <laughs> witness to say, yeah, look, people, the Apostle Paul <laughs> is hard to understand, and you ought to take that seriously. People have repeated it for millennia,
2: I, I, but I feel like you know that general sense of like something should be obvious, and we shouldn't spend time talking about the hard questions. It's like I think there is a sense of, uh, particularly around young people today. Take climate change for example, where it's like, uh, oh yeah, climate change bad. Let's just fix it. We don't need to spend time, I don't know, asking hard questions or how to work with people or how to there's a ton of ethical trade-offs that are going to i think be coming up here in the next like 50 years it seems to be pervasive you know as you said on the right and the left um what are usually some of the the light bulb moments that you see in your students like these aha moments where it finally starts to click um maybe like is there a particular thinker that's helpful or parable that's helpful or image that usually makes People kind of go, oh, this is a different way of looking at the world.
3: So I'm working in the Bible Belt, right? So, so a, lot, a lot of people that I get to encounter are much more shaped uh, not by progressivism, but by Bible Belt conservative mores. And so, you know, one of the things that's common in the right these days is this sort of immediate fear or dismissal of talking about justice, or talking about social justice. And uh, there was a, a well-known Old Testament scholar who, who had this, this um, essay entitled something like Why Social Justice is a Conservative Matter. And what he, what he meant by that was that you, know, you, you can't read the Old Testament without seeing the prophets call for justice over and, over and over and over and over and over again. And so it's a sort of way of trying to say, let's be conservative here, You want to be conservative? Okay, let's be conservative, which means taking careful attention to the tradition and careful attention to the scriptures. And so let's read them. And let's read Amos, the prophet Amos in eighth century, you know, wealthy eighth century uh, Israel context, and see what he has to say about riches and see what he has to say about poverty and see what he has to say about the marginalization of others. And so I think that's one of the things that has kind of served me well in my teaching is that I try to, and this is one of the things that we talk about on our show, is we talk about breaking down false dichotomies, you know, that we have so many sort of either or choices that we're, we presume we have to choose from, conservative or liberal. Well, it's really much, much more interesting than that, right? There are certain things that stereotypical liberals say that are super helpful and important. There's, there's some things that stereotypical conservatives say that are super, super helpful and, and, and important. And so how can we try to find a way to break down that false dichotomy and say, what can we find as a, as a third sort of way, if you will, uh, to, to go forward? And which, again, I, I just want to note because it's a matter of some pressing cultural concerning critique. To make that kind of approach is not to say we're looking for some point in the middle between those two or sort of lukewarm between those two, but to say, what can, what can we find? How can we have conversations with both and then see what is helpful and provocative uh, informed that might inform us as a third sort of way?
1: One thing speaking of dichotomies I think especially since maybe the election of Donald Trump there has been this like complete divide in how two parts of the country see each other. So on the left they see this resurgent Christian nationalism rising to the presidency and then on the right they see their church under threat by, you know, overwhelming progressive cultural and other institutions. What do you see your and your students? Do they kind of have the bunker bunker mentality? Are they open to you know trying to find <laughs> that third way? What What are you seeing? Yeah.
3: I see all of the above. I mean, we have our our campus is is we have real kind of hard right wingers, and we have real progressive folks on the left, and then we have everywhere in between, and we have people that voted for Donald Trump and support Donald Trump, and we have people that are never Trumpers. And so it makes for a really interesting context, and it's trying to find a way to have conversation in that context that sometimes is challenging. Um, But, yeah, doing I, I tell people that doing theology in the Bible Belt is a contact sport. It can really get hot really fast. And so it's not for the faint of heart. Say more about that. Like, meaning it's just like so.
2: It's such a like strong personal identifier for people yeah. that
3: anytime it's brought up, it's sort of it like any identity issue, yeah. it yeah. gets really tough. It does, and and you know, I mean, it, and it ranges from very public to very personal. I mean, so for example, a number of years ago, I, I did I had done a lecture on uh, interfaith engagement lecture, and it was a really or, little orthodox Christian approach to thinking about. How can we have constructive, fruitful, respectful dialogue with Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and so forth? And it was was this great little gathering on our campus, and there was a newspaper reporter that picked it up, and uh, she called me that day because you know, and I could tell she didn't understand what I was saying, and so I spent about half an hour talking to her. And the next morning, I kid you not, I mean, I went out and picked up the newspaper. Still, I still got the print newspaper at that time, and I picked it up, and it was it was front page, top fold, headline you know, misrepresentation. Theologian says Christians must let go beliefs to get along with Muslims. So the right wing picked it up, uh, you know, by eight o'clock that morning, I was, I was hearing from the local rap station, had a call in and found me stupid by a wide margin. By 10 o'clock I was hearing from Detroit talk radio, Fox News in New York City. Uh, I had been doxxed and my information had been put on a right wing blog and just heard from people all over the world, uh, calling me every name you can imagine. And so, so there's that kind of stuff. But then there's a very personal stuff, like um, something that I wouldn't want to talk about in this context uh, that's going on in my local church congregation, where, uh, you know, one part of our traditional practice, we've decided we're going to change. But, you know, I, I have a friend who who now uh, seems not to talk to me because she disagrees with me about this sort of stuff. It can be very sharp, very painful, and very difficult. But, you know, in some ways that goes back to what I said that I loved about my home church community. That it's, a, that it's a community and we care about each other and we care about what we say we believe. Well, was, some years ago, I had uh, I had done a sermon at my home church and I was griping to one of my graduate students about the way a woman just let me have it afterwards and had really laid into me and um, because she didn't like the sermon. And after I had lamented and griped, he said, I envy that. And I said, what in the world are you talking about? And he said, I envy the fact that it means that you have a community that people care about. And the fact that she will let you have it means that you have actually a viable community that's that's something worth fighting for. When you, when you stop arguing, right? When you stop talking to people, that's when you no longer have a tradition. And I, I, let me throw Alister McIntyre in there again, right? McIntyre's definition of a, of a tradition is an argument extended across time. And so it's, it's, as long as you can argue about stuff, and you argue about particular questions, then you have a viable tradition. But when you don't have interesting conversations you can have, then that points to the death of the tradition. And I think that's a helpful way to think about the difficulties that we face.
2: Yeah, it's like any relationship, like apathy or stonewalling are like the true markers of when things have gone bad. Lee, this has been such a good conversation and really, really illuminating. Um, We do have one final question for you before we let you go. Um, We ask all our guests this uh, in a true ecumenical fashion. If you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real,
3: uh, Southern or not, who would it be (laughs) and why? Um, I mean, the first one that pops into mind, and he may be, I don't know if he's been canonized yet or if he's in... Candidacy for that, but Oscar Romero is who first comes to mind for me. He's up there already. Is he okay? So he's we already got we already got him. I'm so glad that the church has agreed with me on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, when did you when did you encounter Romero and at Notre Dame? What? And uh, somebody yeah. somebody put me onto the film about Romero, and that probably is the single film I have watched more than anyone in my life because I used it for years and years with my undergrad ethics class. Um, and so I just find it such a beautiful, beautiful story and am so moved by, by his story. Well, he was not, you know, initially
2: was not viewed as, you know, a saint or no, a martyr. So, right. Yeah. Just takes some time to come yes. around. Yes. All right. So we're re canonizing Oscar yeah. Romero. <laughs> All yeah. right. Awesome. Once more, the podcast is No Small Endeavor with Lee C. Camp, And you can find it wherever you're listening
3: to this. Lee, thanks so much for coming on the Thank show. Thank you, Zach. Thank you, Ashley. Appreciate the great conversation. Thanks for having me.
2: And now it's time for Parish Announcements, the part of our show where we ask you to please be seated before the final blessing. And wanna give a huge shout out to our O'Hare fellows here at America Media. Um, We're about to record a special Patreon conversation with them um, on Wednesday, November 15th, but also they're taking over America Media's Instagram today.
1: Right, so you should already be following America on Instagram. It's at America Media, and if you look back at our story from Wednesday, you can see a day in the life of an O'Hare fellow, um, starting with our morning huddle where we decide what we're going to talk about in the, in the uh, website of America that day, and. And I don't know what they did after that. Are you not
2: caught up? <laughs> I haven't. Oh, my goodness. Oh, it's actually great. They like they even like document their commute. It's great. There's some scenes from the subway. Um, they give an office tour. Um, Glenda, our receptionist, makes an appearance. Um, oh, I think excellent. we we appear in a meeting prepping for Jesuitical. Um, they're talking about the things they like to write about, how they choose what they want to write about, um, some of their other responsibilities here at America, um, how great it is living in the city of New York, the greatest city in the world. So if you are a college senior, or you know someone that's a college senior. Uh, we would love to work with them um, or you, if that's you listening. So please check out O'HareFellows.org to find out for more information about the O'Hare Fellowship. There's a deadline coming up at the end of November for an early priority. Uh, I think that's how you yes. phrase, right? <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> early admissions for the O'Hare Fellowship. That's yes. just, uh, November 30th, but uh, applications are open all the way up to February
2: 1st. So, so. A- again, O'HareFellows.org, come work with Ashley and I and everyone here at America.
1: And now we have, as one friend speaks to another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives this week. And this week, Zach, uh, you're trying to find God in administration?
2: Yeah, so a little bit of backstory. Um, I'm unpacking like what the the spiritual experience of our month in Rome was like. And uh, when I studied abroad in college in Rome, uh, it was actually a really hard time for me to be Catholic or at least that's what I thought back then. Um, I don't know. There was like I had this expectation that like I was going to be in the center of Catholicism, and therefore like there was just going to be grace, you know, like coming out of every basilica wall that exists there, and I was just going to be basking in this state of consolation all the time. And yet, this was like a really important for me in my own growing up and formation is like being surrounded by all of that, and also feeling like I was in desolation. Like I. Loved all the churches. They're beautiful. They're these incredible spectacles, and they give great testament to God's beauty. But they honestly, to me back then, felt a little bit like museums. The kind of empty people are there with their guidebooks and their photographs and um, all kinds of things. And I was having a really hard time praying in any of these spaces. I love
1: feeling like I'm a celebrity at Mass. People are taking (laughs) pictures of
2: me. Yeah, not the Pieta behind you. Um, So I I don't know. I went through a lot of that. I was so grateful to be at a Jesuit school then, because people were like, okay, well, do you think God was totally absent from your life? And, you know, I was able to say, no, like I was able to find him in all these like friendships and walks that I was taking. And also in this, like being away from home for the first time, like I was able to like actually bring God out of the church walls for the first time, I think in a, in a real way. And so honestly being there, this past October was a bit of like whiplash for me where I was like, oh, part of me was like expecting to find God like I was when I was 20 again in the same ways and in the same like big churches and beautiful things and uh, wasn't happening again. And so at the same time, we're like very closely covering the Vatican. And I found myself like struggling with like having a lot of deep admiration for all the people running the Vatican and also being very frustrated by all of the bureaucracy that exists behind it. You've been my coworker for almost 10 years now. Like I don't necessarily do well in like when there's like red tape or
1: inefficiencies inefficiencies or
2: (laughs) to the point where I like in in sometimes an unprofessional way will just kind of like blow up or lose it. Um, And so there's a ton of inefficiencies and bureaucracies happening at the Vatican. And I was not really like I was having a hard time praying while I was there. And so I'm just like struck with this fact that like, Rome is a really tough place for me to like, be a Catholic. And yet, also, if I'm honest, and this happens after the fact, I think it was like a really good month for me, it reminds me like, okay, this is an important part of our church, but it is not like the entire church, right? There's all all these places around the world where work of the church is being done and like we should be carrying those with us even when we're in rome and also i was able to like pray in a lot of great places like the the caravita community that we went to mass with um we had some some great like conversations with people on the podcast outside of the podcast so it's not that god wasn't like present there, but he just wasn't where I was expecting to find him.
1: You know, this might give consolation to those who have conspiracy theories about uh what the Vatican is doing behind the scenes. It's it's probably not happening. <laughs> it's not exactly a well-oiled machine, so it might be giving them too much credit to think that they are in control of the, Running world, the world war.
2: <laughs> yeah, somehow. Um so listeners, I just wanna I just want to leave you with this thought of like, are there times in your life where you were really expecting to find God and maybe through door one and then turns out he was in door two or three, um, and you weren't expecting it. So think about those times in your lives. Because for me, door one was a beautiful Baroque cathedral, and door two was uh, aperitivo with some good friends.
1: <laughs> All right, I'll get us out of here. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Michael O'Brien, Delaney Coyne, and Kevin Christopher Robles, who is also our sound engineer. Faith Formation, provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on X and Instagram at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Lowshirt Studio at America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next
2: week.